Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. So nice to be with you all this morning. It's with a bit of fear and trepidation, as Paul told the Corinthians. I was weak you with you with much fear and trembling. And it's this message. I've put it off as long as I can. It's not a message I really want to preach for a number of reasons. What I want you to know about today's message is that the application of today's message is not so much something you can take home with you and do each day in your Christian walk. The applicational aspect of this message is to conform our thinking to biblical truth so that we think God's thoughts after Him, so that we want to be part of a biblical church that attempts to follow the Scriptures as close as possible. Today's message is about thinking biblically about the role of women in the church, and that's the key, in the church. We're not talking about the role of women in the family. We're not talking about the role of women in marriage. We're not talking about the role of women in the military. We're not talking about the role of women in business. We're not talking about the role of women in government. We're not talking about the role of women in any sphere or arena other than in the local church. There is truth for the local church that does not necessarily translate into these other realms, these other spheres. Early in my engineering career, I worked for a woman. When she interviewed me, she asked me a question. Would you have problems working for a woman? I told her, no, not at all. I'm married. I work for my wife. No problem at all. She liked that answer, so she hired me. This is about women in the church. It's a timely message because I don't know if you know this, perhaps a number of you do, but there is a very big push right now towards what is called Christian feminism. It shouldn't be called biblical feminism because it doesn't resemble in many ways the Scripture's teaching about women. But it's called Christian feminism. And it's invading non-denominational churches like Grace Gospel Churches. It's invading even denominations like the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention. Some of the proponents of this are some of the most well-known men and women leaders. So this is a timely message. You're going to be confronted with this if you surf the net to Christian websites. You'll undoubtedly see more and more articles about this. If you listen to Christian radio or watch Christian television, if you talk with some of your Christian friends who may fellowship elsewhere, you're going to be exposed to this. A lot of what I'm going to say today is because not because I necessarily want to teach you some of these things, but because I want you to understand these things when you encounter them 
in the news, on the internet, on radio or television. So I don't want to turn this into a seminary class, not at all, but if you're a student of the Word and you like to learn biblical truth from different sources, you will undoubtedly sooner or later encounter some of these terms. There's only going to be four, two words, and then two concepts that go along with those words. I'll define them all. There'll be slides for them. There's fill-in-the-blanks on the bulletin for them. Uh, the fill-in-the-blanks are also, I uploaded them to the website already, so they're there as well as the PowerPoint slideshow. Uh, you'll be able to fill them out if you don't do so this morning, and you'll have a record so you understand what these words mean. I want to start this morning with one key question, and then I'm going to build on that question. The one key question is this, and if you want to call out an answer to this question, by all means call it out. Here's the question. When is it ever right for the world to dictate to the church its theology? When? Never. Never. It is not the world's job, this world system under the control of Satan, the God of this world, to dictate to the church its theology. The church's theology comes from the inspired word of God. It does not come from the world. Now, why do I ask this question? I'd like to suggest that all of us in this room today to a lesser degree or a greater degree, we have been educated by this world system to think thoughts after this world system. We might call it brainwashing. Let me give you an example, and then I'm going to bring it closer to home with this message. Do you realize that polls today of teenagers and 20-year-olds just over 70% of those polled believe gender is a social construct. They believe gender ideology trumps scientific biology. Gender is just in the mind. You can be any gender you want. A physician who delivers a child is not qualified to assign gender to that child after all their medical training. Now, if you're 30 years of age and older, in your 30s you might have been exposed some, to some of this in the public schools. But as you get older, like me, approaching the age of Methuselah, you look back on this and you think, that's preposterous. That's preposterous. I can pull out my birth certificate. I showed it to my wife not too long ago. Gender, male. Some may question that, because I'm a little in touch with my female side, but be that as it may, it says male. The doctor knew. How? 70% of the teens and 20-year-olds don't know. Okay, now we sort of laugh at this, and we sort of think it's preposterous. Let me share something else with you. And this applies to all of us here, very likely, I don't know for sure, I'm guessing here, to a lesser degree or a greater degree. In the mid 19 there is biblical truth dealing with the role of women in the church that is clearly brought out in Scripture. 
That truth was never questioned in Western society. It was accepted as true. In the mid-1950s, on college campuses around this country, was the rise of radical feminism. Ten years later, in the 60s, when I was in high school, it was in high school. I was fed a daily diet of radical feminism. I embraced feminist ideas that women should be equal to men in every single way and there was no difference except if it be, as was the mantra of the day, anything boys can do, girls can do better. Now that doesn't sound like equality, that sounds like an agenda, but nonetheless, that's what was said. So I have to admit to you today, inside of me is this slight tug still, away from biblical truth to the brainwashing of the ideology that I was fed a daily diet of in public schools. And perhaps some of you were fed that same diet. Perhaps some of you feel some of the teachings in Scripture are unfair. But that is the world dictating to the church. A few years ago, I was speaking with two sisters in the Lord back in my home church in Connecticut. They're both at home with the Lord now. One went home in her mid-90s, the other at around 90 years of age. Dear beloved sisters, rooted and grounded in the Christian faith in God's Word, able to teach God's Word to women, they were in their 20s in the mid-1950s when radical feminism first started rising up. I was having a conversation with both of them, and they both agreed. They both enlightened me. They were both Christians at the time, and they said, these truths about women and the role of women were never questioned before the rise of radical feminism. And that's what they attributed the change in thinking in the Bible-believing church to. Feminism. So when is it ever right for the world to dictate to the church its theology? That's what has happened. And that's why these things which were settled matters for centuries since the time of Christ started to be questioned. I want to introduce you to two key terms just because you may encounter them. The first term is actually used in secular writings on feminism. The second term is distinctly Christian, though. But they present two sides of the same coin. And that's what I'm going to try and do today. Because one side totally ignores the other side. They attack the other side. They denigrate the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin tends to not ignore or attack, but minimize the first side of the coin. So what are these two key terms? They're big words. Don't be scared by it. The definitions are very simple. Here are the two words. Egalitarianism, and someone who believes in that is an egalitarian, and complementarianism. 
And someone who believes in that is a complementarian. Egalitarianism is sometimes used in secular writings on feminism. So you may encounter it. What do these words, what do these words mean? Egalitarianism is that the roles of men and women are identical in every aspect, in every respect. There is absolutely no difference whatsoever. In its most, in my opinion, preposterous form, we have this today that men can get pregnant. Now that's way, way further off from what we're talking about, but that's the most extreme one. But men and women, even though egalitarianism is a biblical teaching, as we will see, there's still differences. You know, one of the first things I noticed walking around college campus, I wasn't even a Christian yet. You know, backpacks, everybody uses backpacks now to carry books, but very few did. Everyone carried their books and their notebooks, their textbooks. And I noticed something. As I, I remember that day, a bright sunny day in September, and I'm looking at one of the concrete sidewalks. You weren't supposed to walk on the grass. Okay, I did sometimes. But you weren't supposed to. And I'm watching all these other students, maybe 80 or 100 feet away, walk. And I noticed something. How were the guys carrying their books? And how were the gals carrying their books? The guys carry their books in their hand under their arm. The girls carry the books clasped to their chest. Who told them to do that? They, they didn't even recognize, oh, I'm carrying my books wrong. I got to carry them like a girl or like a guy. There are these innate differences that you don't have to teach a child. My son and daughter, you know, if they were playing with toys, my son, everything was a fight a war, a battle. My daughter, the tanks are talking nice to each other. It's, no one taught them to be like that. There are innate differences, but there are, in egalitarianism, what they focus on is the roles, what a man or woman can do or should be able to do is identical in every way. Complementarianism is the roles of men and women are different and complement each other. Not that the role of one is greater and the role of the other is lesser. The roles are different. Different is not bad. To really begin to understand this subject, it's wrong to start at the human level. The issues of an understanding of both egalitarianism and complementarianism in the Christian faith is rooted and grounded in the nature, the eternal nature of the triune Godhead. That is the right starting point. Don't look around at men and women. Look up to God and see what we learn regarding egalitarianism, and complementarianism from God.
from the triune nature of God, we discover two important truths related to equality or egalitarianism and inequality or complementarianism. Now, the word inequality is what's normally used. Differences might be a better word because it's not an inequality like one is men are three and women are two, three is greater than two. No, it's like women are, are W and men are M. They're just different letters. It's different. It's not an issue of, of greater than or less than. But we find both of these, equality in the triune Godhead and inequality or difference. And I'm going to show you scriptures in a little bit. We're going to get into the scriptures, and you're going to see how this actually comes out so clearly. It's the plain wording. I'm not even going to have to try to interpret it or explain it. You'll see it in the plain wording of Scripture. So in the, in the triune nature of the Godhead, there is both equality and inequality or differences. Here are the last two terms you need to know because one of them is related to egalitarianism. It's the application of it. You might think of it in that way. And the other is related to complementarianism. Ontological equality. And I'll explain ontological in a moment. It's very simple. And functional inequality. Functional differences. So what is ontology? Ontology is one's being, one's essence, one's nature. Since we say it begins with God and there is ontological equality, there's equality with God, there is egalitarianism with God, with the three persons of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're talking about their being, their divine essence and nature, their attributes and character, all being co-equal. When we talk about functional inequality or functional differences, we're talking about the actions of each person in the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're talking about their interaction with each other. There's differences. And that comes out clearly in the scriptures as well. So the source of what we're going to talk about, the role of women in the church, finds its source, its origin, its root, its very ground in the nature of God. Let's look first at the sameness, the equality that exists in the essence, the being, the nature, the ontology of the triune Godhead. Jesus Christ says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. This does not mean that he is the Father, that they're both the same person. That's an ancient, ancient heresy that was rejected by the church. What is the context of this statement? The context of this statement, you can go back to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one shall pluck them out of my hand. The Father who is greater than I has given them to me, and no one shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. The Father's greater than all, excuse me, and no one shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In the context, it's one in their desire to give eternal life to the sheep. It's one in their desire to keep the sheep secure from ever being lost. It's one in their power and ability to keep the sheep secure. There is this equality between the Father and the Son brought out in John 10, verses 27 through 30. Here is another equality. Jesus says in John 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Remember he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you have both seen him, and uh, you have both heard him and seen him. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus says to Philip, have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. They're equal in divine testimony. They're equal in divine character. They're equal in the works that Jesus did. If it was the Father, he would have done the same works. If it was the Father, he would have said the same words that Jesus said. They're equal in that way. Here's another one. So that all will honor the Son even as, just as. The Greek word has the idea of just as, exactly as, to the same degree. That all should honor the Son to the same degree that they honor the Father. There is an equality in honor. Jesus says, he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. There is a re an equality as well. You reject Christ, you reject God. How about an equality with the Holy Spirit? Is he part of the triune Godhead? Yes, he is. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, you have lied to God, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. It's the same thing. There is an equality. But in the divine triune Godhead, there is also functional differences, a functional inequality. We've seen the sameness in their essence, in their being, in their character, in their attributes. Now let's see what the Scripture brings out as some differences. And you really already know these. If you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know these. So this is going to be more like a reminder. Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, but I want you to understand that God is the head of Christ. Nowhere does it say Christ is the head of God. When you read Paul's writings and he mentions Christ or he mentions the Lord and in the same context he mentions God, by God he means God the Father. It's just the way Paul writes. John will use the terms father and son. Paul uses the terms God and Christ or God and Lord. 
So here, what he's saying is God the Father is the head of Christ. We don't read that Christ is the head, <clears throat> excuse me, of God the Father. So there's a difference there. The Father exercises headship over his beloved Son within the triune Godhead. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, the Father sent the Son. The Son didn't send the Father. There's a difference. One gave the command, so to speak, and the other willingly obeyed and was sent. In John 10, after he says, I and the Father are one, the Lord says, Do you say of him whom the Father sent into the world? The Son, Christ, came into the world. The Father didn't come into the world in the same way, incarnate in flesh. The Father sent the Son into the world. In 1 John, John says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son was the Savior of the world. Yes, God is the Savior of all men, but especially of those who believe, the Scripture says. There is a sense in which God is a Savior of all men by virtue of creation. Here, though, the Son is the Savior of the world by virtue of being the sin-bearer on the cross, bearing the sins of the world in his body. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior the Son is the Savior. He was the sin-bearer. He died. The Son died on the cross. Very often, uh, from time to time, you might hear somebody pray, Oh, Father, thank you so much for dying for us. The Father didn't die for us. God, the Son, died for us. Now, we don't jump on people for, for misspeaking like that in prayer. We all do it at times. But we should be aware that the Father didn't die for our sins. The Son died. The Son is the Savior of the world. In Galatians, Paul writes, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God sent his Son. Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was born nine months later to Mary. He was born a Jewish male under the law. The father wasn't, the son was. So there's a difference here. I think we all can see that. If we know the gospel, we understand the difference. How about the Holy Spirit? The father sends the Holy Spirit. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into their hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. God not only sent the son, he sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't send the Father. The Holy Spirit doesn't send the Son. There's a difference there. But it's not just the Father who sends the Spirit. Jesus Christ says in John 15, when the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, if we read John 14 and 15, it's very clear, the Spirit of truth, the Helper, the Spirit of truth. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. So not only does the Father send the Spirit, 
The Son sends the Spirit as well. There's this inequality there. Functionally, they operate differently. So God is the source. God is the picture. God is the example of equality and differences between the persons of the triune Godhead. And we're going to take this divine truth and we're now going to apply it to the horizontal level to women in the church, not in any other sphere, but in the church. That's what the scriptures are concerned about, the functioning of the local church, the belief system and the operation or functioning of the local church, how we practice church. Let's look, first of all, we have to begin here it's just wrong to begin with women are different than men and, and ignore the sameness that Scripture so powerfully says in these three verses in Galatians 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you remember when we studied who we are in the church in Thinking Biblically uh, Series 2? And it was mentioned earlier on in one of these messages in series three. We saw that the church was Christ's body. It was a building, a holy temple, and it was Christ's bride. And I remember mentioning to all the men, you're part of Christ's bride. You're not the bridegroom. The Lord Jesus is the bridegroom. We are part of the bride. So we got to get in touch, guys, with our feminine side. We're part of the bride. We look forward to the coming of the bridegroom the way we know women look forward to the coming of their wedding day. They plan for months, a year for it sometimes. And they, they wait for it, they wait for it, they wait for it, and it happens. They're so joyful. And then when it's all over, it's, it's over so quick. You know, it's, it's surprising to, sometimes to some women. But they look forward to it. And so we as men, as part of the bride of Christ, need to look forward to the coming of our bridegroom. But here in Galatians, it's reversed. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And he's going to say at the end of verse uh, 28 that it's male and female as well. Ladies, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ's finished work on the cross for your salvation, you are a son of God. You're not a daughter of God, according to this verse. You are a son of God. Now, why does it use the word son? You've got to understand something. This word is, and I'm going to say this intentionally, pregnant with meaning. And no, men can't get pregnant. But the meaning here, in many ancient cultures, as well as in Jewish culture in the Old Testament, inheritance was passed from the father to the sons, not to the daughters. The word sons is a word that involves inheritance. Ladies, you will inherit everything that any man who is a Christian and trusts in Jesus Christ will. You are not second-class citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You rate up there, you rank up there 
with any man. Anything that's available to them is available to you. You will inherit all that men can inherit in the kingdom of God. That's why it says your sons. The idea is an inheritance. You are co-equal. You have the same value, the same spiritual worth as any man. You don't need a man to have access to God. You don't need a man to pray for you. You can ask one, but you don't absolutely need that. You can offer up sacrifices of praise and worship to God as well as any man can. And revealing my bias again, I'd have to say that in my opinion, very often, when a woman prays, she prays God's heart better than any man. I love to hear women pray. My own wife, our, our brother Kim prayed this morning. Uh, our sister, uh, brother Kim, oh boy. Well, she's a son of God, okay? I, I recovered from that, uh, that, that klutz maneuver there. Okay, our sister Kim, our sister Allie. I am just touched by their prayers. I love to hear them pray. I learn more how I can relate to God when I hear a woman pray. I think it's fine for women to pray. I think it's fine for women to read the Scriptures. I'll explain why in a little bit. But Paul says here, for you, why are all sons of God both men and women, here's why. For all of you were baptized into Christ. You have clothed yourself with Christ. That is with the righteousness of Christ. There is not one righteousness of Christ for women and another righteousness of Christ for men. It is all one righteousness in Christ. There is only one Christ. There's not one Christ for men and one Christ for women. It's the same Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, to make it very, very clear, based on these two truths, that they are all sons of God, male and female, as well as the other categories, Greek and Jew, uh, slave and free man, you're all sons of God, the same, co-equal. And all were baptized into Christ Jesus, if they're a true believer. The Holy Spirit has baptized them into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 teaches that. For by one Spirit were you all baptized into one body. And he's speaking of the body of Christ there, the universal church. All have clothed themselves with Christ. And now he's going to make it clear who he's talking about. Since they have all put on the same Christ, they have all put on the same righteousness of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That distinction is now gone, Jew or Gentile. There is neither slave nor free man. Everyone is Christ's bond slave. There is neither male nor female. Women are co-equal in the Christian faith with men. This was an amazing, liberating message. You know, you will sometimes hear from some who are poorly taught as Christians, some unbelievers 
who may support a radical feminist agenda. That Christianity is demeaning to women. That Christianity holds women down. That Christianity makes women subservient. Do you know, historically, when the Christian faith first came out in the first century through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then his apostles proclaiming the gospel, Christianity was the most liberating, female liberating force in the Roman Empire. Women were flocking to become Christians because their status was elevated like in no other culture, no other religion. That's what Christianity did. It raised the status of women to be co-equal with men in their faith to the Lord God. They were not second-class citizens. It is a complete falsehood that Christianity held women back. Now, I'll admit that there might be some Christian leader somewhere throughout church history that tried to put his foot on the neck of women. In fact, the whole radical feminist movement, you can blame men in part for that, for the way women have been treated throughout history. That's true. But its genesis is in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3. When he cursed Eve, besides pain and childbirth, the Lord said this, you will try to dominate your husband, but he will dominate you. What was true in the marriage relationship, radical feminism has expanded to be the domination desire between all women and all men to rule over the other. But Christianity does away with that. We're all one in Christ, co-equal. That's, that, I don't know about you, but that's good news. I'm not a woman, and I think it's good news. I hope the women thinks, think that is good news. You're not second-class citizens at all. Now, how about the differences, the functional differences, the complementarianism in the local church? That exists, too. Paul says this, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and that man is the head of a woman, and that God is the head of Christ. It begins with God as the head. This is just a reminder of what we had learned before. Remember, what we're going to see between men and women in the church is what exists in the triune Godhead. There is an inequality or there is a difference. Here, God is the head of Christ. Functional differences, complementarianism involves headship. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. He mentions head three times. Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. So there's headship involved. What is headship? Paul brings this out very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all 
rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things, not just head over the church, head over all things to the church. Headship clearly from this passage involves authority above all power and dominion, rule and authority. There should be no question about that. Headship involves authority in some form. In the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's an absolute authority. In the case of men being the head of woman, it's an extremely limited authority that extends to, as we'll see, two things and two things only. Here again are the three headships. The Christ is, the, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, not just some men, every man. Man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. It's popular today to reject the second one, that man is the head of woman. But notice something. You can't reject that without also rejecting the other two. You can't pick and choose. If one is wrong, all three are wrong. Christ is not the head of man. Who here, what man here would say, Christ is not your head, not your Lord? And you claim to be a Bible-believing Christian. None would. There's no woman here who would say that Christ is not the head of every believing man. You can't throw out one without throwing out all three. We can't pick and choose. Either all three are true or all three are false. As a Bible-believing Christian, we believe all three are true. But in what way is a man the head of a woman? What, where do those differences within the local church lie? We'll get to that in a moment. Why does man have headship? Uh, Paul says, for a man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, he doesn't say the woman is not the image of God. He's silent on that. You can't draw any conclusions. In fact, Genesis 1.27 is very clear. God created mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. Not him, but them. Women are created in God's image as much as man is created in God's image according to a correct translation and interpretation of Genesis 1.27. So Paul is not denying Genesis 1.27 here. He's just not saying that women are in the image of God. And if he doesn't say it, you can't assert, oh, he's saying they are, and you can't assert they're saying he's saying they're not. He's just silent. Man is the glory of God, and he's focusing on woman being the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman. Adam was created first, and according to Genesis, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and from Adam's side, he took a portion of Adam, and he created woman. I got to tell you, that's a lot better than what it says about Adam. He created Adam from the dust in the ground. Guys were dirt. Women, at least, 
are warm flesh and blood. Okay, I'm being a little facetious there, but you get the point I'm trying to make. Man does not originate from woman. Adam didn't come from Eve, but woman from man. Eve came from Adam. For indeed, and lest we exalt ourselves over this, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake, because man lacked something. We need to recognize that. That's why. And it was more than just procreation. She was Adam's helpmeet in taking care of the garden. He needed her. The differences, when we focus on these differences, we should never forget that there is equality. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. So there is a dependence there. You know, to this day, in our Lord's day, throughout the centuries, even to this day, in Orthodox Judaism, as well as in Islam, whether you go to the synagogue of the Orthodox Jew or you go to the mosque in Islam, women sit together on one side, men sit together on the other side. They don't sit together. They're separate. They're not equal. The person who's teaching the scriptures, he sits in front of the men. And the, and the women might strain to hear that's not equality. Since when should women not have every right to hear God's word that men hear? Paul here, in talking about differences, brings out the equality again. We've got to always remember this, guys. And ladies, always remember this. Men are not independent of women, and women are not independent of men. The body of Christ, his bride, consists of men and women. The sons of God consists of male and female. So what are the extent of the differences? And this is what we're heading to, and this is what so-called Christian feminism, which is anything but biblical feminism. Do you know who the very first feminist was? It was God. He created woman in his image. God was the first feminist. He established the right place for women. The extent of the differences, Paul begins with this. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. He mentions something very similar to this in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. He says, The women are to remain silent in the churches, for it's not permitted them to speak. And if they want to, and then he gives a key insight into what he's talking about. And if they want to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's not permitted a woman to speak. That whole chapter is about chaos and discord in the meeting of the local church. People are just standing up and speaking left and right on top of each other, whether they be prophets or whether they be speaking in tongues in the church in Corinth. The women appeared, they had so much freedom in Christ that it appears both here in verse 11 and in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, 
that they took their freedom a little too far. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, women were not well-educated. Not saying that was right, it was clearly wrong, but it was the truth of the matter. And so it appears that they might call out a question to the person preaching. Look, that's not appropriate. It's not appropriate if a man does it either. But here it appears, both in Corinth and in Ephesus, where Timothy was, Paul makes that very clear. For this reason, I left you at Ephesus. He says that in the first chapter. That women were taking their newfound liberty in Christ just a little bit too far. And in Corinth, it was clear that they were either asking questions of the person who was speaking. Can you explain that a little more clearly? Or they might have turned to their husband and asked the husband the question, uh, disturbing those around them. He says, let them ask their husband at home. So this is the basis, something that was going on both in the church at Corinth and the church at Ephesus. He doesn't elaborate on it, but in Corinth it becomes a little clearer that it was asking questions during the church service. We might find that strange, but just imagine having so much newfound liberty and being treated as co-equal with men after being held down in their culture that this kind of thing could happen. You could put a toe or a foot across the boundary of what is right and proper. It's understandable, at least I think it is. But then Paul limits the extent of the differences to two things. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. What is he talking about here? That a woman can't teach at all? Well, he says in Titus chapter 2, I want the older women to teach the younger women. So it's not a total prohibition on teaching. What is the context of this? It's when the church gathers together. That's what 1 Timothy is about. He talks about elders in the church. He talks about deacons in the church. He talks about care of true widows in the church. He talks again about how elders are to be treated in the church. He has a lot to say about how the church should function in 1 Timothy. That is Paul's concern. The shepherding of the church. That's why they're called the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus. It deals with shepherding and how the church functions. He's talking about teaching in the church. Now remember what I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago. At the time Paul wrote this, and for a long time afterwards, at least a century, perhaps more, the church met one day a week on Sunday, just like we do. But the difference was that church service, that church gathering, started early in the morning, shortly after the sun rose. And it continued all day long until shortly before the sunset. It gave time for people to begin walking to church. It gave time for them to get home before it got too dark. During that day-long Assembly, that gathering of the church, they had multiple sessions throughout the day. New Testament historians know this. 
from all their ancient writings about the church, they met throughout the day. Different men would teach. And we saw that in, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, that there were multiple teachers in the church. In fact, sometimes in one session, multiple individuals would teach. Since it was all day long and people were away from their home, in the middle of the day, they would stop and have a communal meal, a fellowship meal. It was called the agape feast, the love feast. Jude mentions it in Jude. And then at the end of that, they would have the Lord's Supper with the bread and the cup, communion. Just like we do once a month, they did that every Sunday at the end of the agape feast. So when Paul tells Timothy here, I don't allow a woman to teach, he's talking about when the church met together. They only met on that Sunday. There were no midweek Bible studies. There were no women's studies. There were no men's studies. There was not adult Sunday school. There wasn't children's Sunday school. He's not saying you can't, a woman can't teach children's Sunday school. There wasn't any. He couldn't be saying that. He's talking about when the church gathers together like this, a woman is not allowed to teach. But clearly, he said, I want the older women to teach the younger women. So it's not a total prohibition against teaching. It's teaching when the church gathers together. And then to exercise authority. What is this that he's talking about? You know, some people differ with me on this. I just want you to know that. But I simply do not see how having a dear sister in the Lord read the announcements is exercising authority. I don't see how a woman opening the service in prayer is exercising authority. Oh, some have said to me, but Brother Paul, she could teach in her prayer. Okay, that's a problem. But you know, it's a problem if a man does it. Prayer is talking to God. It's not teaching people. It's wrong whether it's a man or a woman. And the sisters here don't teach when they pray. They express a godly heart of desire to the Lord that we all should have. I don't see a problem with a woman reading Scripture. Reading Scripture is not teaching. I don't see how any of those are exercising authority. When I read Paul's writings, I find five authorities. If you have a sixth one, tell me, please. But there's the authority of God over the church. There's the authority of Christ as head of the church. There's the authority of the Holy Spirit in the church. There's the authority of God's Word, inspired Word in the church. And then the fifth one that he's talking about here is the authority of elders in the church. And remember when we talked about elders, elders have no authority in and of themselves if they are not standing on God's word. If they cannot cite scripture in support of what they're saying you ought to do, then at best, what they're giving you is their wisdom based on their experience of walking with the Lord. And they might give you reasons why, but it's up to you then to either accept what they say or think, well, maybe they don't fully understand my particular situation, and maybe you don't follow it. But if they give you chapter and verse, then it's not them speaking. 
It's the Lord's word, and so we are all required to follow it. Elders only have authority when they stand on God's word. This is the authority he's talking about. Elders, he does not allow women to be elders or pastors, as they're called in some churches, in the church. These are the only two differences revealed in Scripture that I'm aware of that apply to women. They're not allowed to teach when the church gathers together like we are on Sunday. And they're not allowed to be an elder or a pastor. I, I know. Uh, you know, I said I had this innate bias. And maybe part of me just doesn't like this. There might be some here who don't like this. But the thing is, it's true. I can't deny the truth of it. It is so black and white and clear, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. God didn't ask me my opinion. Hey, Paul, what do you think about this? You know, and, and if I change any of these words, or if I add to them, or I take them out, I can tell you who's wrong. It's me. It's not God. I have to accept what God says. God said it. That settles it. Its truth doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It's always true, even if I reject it. And, and so I'm uncomfortable with some of this. I, I, I think that comes across. But this is God's truth. There's no other way to understand it. Paul gives some reasons in verses 13 through 15. For the sake of time, we're not going to look at that. Uh, you can look at the uh, slideshow online and the fill in the blanks, and you'll see how to, what to fill in. So are we thinking biblically this morning about the role of women in the church, or are we thinking what the world wants us to think? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. Oh, dear God, I pray your Holy Spirit would make your precious truths clear to the minds and hearts of each one here this morning that they would desire to think your thoughts after you, that they would embrace biblical thinking, biblical truth, and so please you in that way. Oh, dear God, may your Holy Spirit be pleased to make up for all the deficiencies in my presentation today of your blessed truth. Bring yourself honor and glory, I pray, for your name's sake. Amen.